welcome to another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Danielle Hanley, and joining me on the other line, because no one will eat pizza with him, it's John McMahon. <laughs> it's very sad. It's just <laughs> me and the cat, and Larry, while he's always up in my stuff, he was not into the pizza. Not into the pizza. Larry, not a, not a pizza fan. Yeah. Uh, it has pineapple and anchovies and, and pickles. And pickles. Yeah. Although my Which sister- is like... Philip full of dad jokes. That is one of the worst dad jokes. What? Not even like good bad. Also because I could see Paige being like, I like pineapple on pizza. You know, Ooh, like <laughs> good, good, good interpretation. I like it. Danielle's ready to go. She's <laughs> locked in like second 48. Like we're good. <laughs> I'm like, come on, Philip. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever we start with pizza, you like, you know, it's going to be a crazy episode. Like <laughs> pizza is my, I, John knows this. I was in New York City last weekend, and I got to New York City and was eating pizza within 30 seconds. I was like, and I will be eating pizza now. And I texted my sister because, like, that's where I was staying. And I was like, okay, like, I'm getting on the subway. She's like, you can get uh, you can get a slice at Baby Luke's. And I was like, oh, I've already eaten pizza. But then I got another slice at Baby Luke's Obviously. because it is also so good. Yeah. I mean, and one thing that New York City is effective at, it's conducive to A, filming the Americans, and B, <laughs> getting pizza in your body within 30 seconds of arrival. 30 seconds of arrival, 30 seconds of arrival in the second location, like... Yeah. As long as it's not, like, airport pizza. You don't want an airport pizza. Or Sbarro from or Sbarro. next to uh, Penn Station. <laughs> Correct. Also, you do not want that. <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. Okay, what are we doing here today, John? Uh, so I was eating my lonely pizza while we're <laughs> going to be talking about uh, American Season 3, Episode 7, Walter Taffet, directed yep. by Noah Emmerich himself. Woo-hoo! Stan, his first time ever, as far as we could tell from IMDb, uh, directing anything, so... So congrats, Noah Emmerich, and written by Laura Shapiro. And Danielle has a very short and sweet IMDb summary for you to go for us. IMDb summaries are really failing us this season. But this one, which I bet I can say in one breath, is that Philip and Elizabeth feel the weight of a family secret while following up on the KGB's interests. Like A, useless, but B, Danielle has been reconnecting with her swimming career. Um, so, like, Danielle's breath work is, like, exceptionally on point. So I think we could have had, like, a three-sentence long IMDb yeah. summer and you still would have gotten there. Well, I can swim, like, 50 yards underwater with no breath. That's a lot of, that's a lot. When I was like in real swimming shape, I could do three laps. I could do three laps underwater or like, yeah, like three laps of like how big a pool, like 25 yards. Oh my God. Like in a, in a 50 meter pool, I can Mm -hmm. go like fully to, I used to be able to, I can't do this anymore. Um, I can go all the way down one side and about halfway back on the other, which is about 75 yards. Just make sure Elizabeth Jennings is not in your pool. <laughs> not about to like strangle <laughs> me with her legs. Yikes. All right. So <laughs> we got, wow. let's, let's toss aside <laughs> swimming pizza and the IMDb summary. Although we're getting, we'll be getting back to one of those things uh, later on in the episode. So, I mean, the episode try is called, one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, try to guess. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Will people be surprised or not surprised? It's actually the it's least a great surprise. Question. The least surprise. <laughs> we literally, the, the, I'm uh, 
we I'm sad that we didn't pick the theme of this episode like officially to be pizza, although we have made the theme of the episode pizza. <laughs> pizza itself is an actant. You're welcome, um, everyone. Yes. Okay, great great segue. Go for it. Great segue. So I think we want to take Walter Taffet as the character as the name of this episode <laughs> and kind of build out from instead of the characters of the human characters of the Americans, yeah. focus on like the really important uh what we would understand to be like non-human objects in yep. this episode of the Americans and especially the pen, the listening device that gets found because Gad is like frustrated. Stan is racistly suspicious of Adderholt and Gad's relationship. Huh. Right. We'll get into that obviously, but Stan makes up an excuse to barge in Gad can't find a working pen and the bug like pops out is rattling around and Adderholt, not Stan crucially yeah. is like, everybody don't talk, but like, I need to inspect this yeah. gets the bug out. Um, and so I think we want to consider the ways in which the listening device itself and then the discovery of the bug kind of move and push the human characters into the Americans into action and changes yeah. their psychological state and the emotional circulations that they're a part of and all of these sorts of things. I love it. And I think like the, it's, important or significant that something so small as this like Ooh, little mm -hmm. bug mm -hmm. is like putting so much in motion, both in terms like of like emotions, uh, in terms of psychology, but also in terms of like physical action, right? Like mm -hmm. there's a lot that falls out of this very tiny thing. And to I mean, maybe push this point a little bit too far, but this tiny listening device is so um, like agential yeah. that it takes away like the words and the speech of the characters because yeah. right? it becomes an entirely wor wordless yeah. scene among Adderholt, Stan and Gad in Gad's office. And then another entirely wordless scene of Martha and then in the bathroom destroying yep. the like receiver in her purse. And then another mostly wordless scene where the like bug sweeper is in there checking out like Martha's workstation and all of the workstations. So it's like yeah. the discovery of this has so much power that it has like shut off the if you will danielle the logos of the americans oh i will and i would just add to that it also generates like uh i would say like a wordless schism Ooh. between martha and clark it sure does and if we think about the object itself not necessarily like having access to speech and then that property gets transferred to all of these other people who do typically have access to speech, like that sort of transference is interesting too. Yeah. Considering that the listening device itself is a recorder and transfer of speech. Oh man, we really did. <laughs> I did not think we were going to really get this deep into, I mean, I should, I should have known. Honestly, you should have known. known. <laughs> um, just as we should have known that pizza would become the theme, we should have known that we would have like this gigantic riff on the, this tiny device, and it's in fact quite powerful. Oh my god, I love us. Yeah, oh, not quite great books. This is this is what they clamor for: um, the large mobs and demanding they, not quite great books. And if they don't, they should <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so, Danielle, what was like your own kind of emotional response when? they discover this listening device, like as the first time viewer and all of the implications that 
come out when the listening device comes out of the pen. I think I'm just going to read the notes that I took. Dram- dramatically, I hope. Dramatic reading from Danielle's notes. Very important document here. All caps. Oh, no, the pen! Exclamation point. <laughs> Uh-oh, Martha. These looks could kill. Oh, my God. What is Martha doing? Fingerprints. This is too risky. Lock the door. Gad is scary. Is Gene also a double agent? Dossier vibes. Could be a janitor. Could be you. Gad's look is wild here. Yeah, so maybe we can, we should focus on some of those, uh, actual moments. I mean, the wordlessness of these scenes really did strike me this time. Yeah. Um, and not just on the, like, it's all the cave level, but on the kind of actual, like, this was an interestingly structured episode in a number of ways. Yeah. Um, and we'll get to some of that a little bit later on here in the main discussion, I think probably also in glass as well. Right. But that, the centerpiece of the episode that comes indeed in the middle third, if you will, of the episode is the discovery of the bug and these series of scenes right. where there's so little dialogue in a show that oftentimes is full of dialogue, full of discourse, is our friend Henry might say. <laughs> um, good old, good old Henry. Henry I had, don't worry, I had a note on that. Hold on, I'll read it to you. Do not worry. Henry with the word discourse. That's a good word, Henry. I like empowered Henry. And <laughs> <laughs> Henry could use some empowerment. I literally taught Foucault today on power. So I feel when Henry said that, I was like, get out of my classroom. <laughs> but maybe, yeah. maybe Kedrick Salati is, is actually in your classroom and you never knew. Possibly. But no, I, I think good, your good point. Disguises. <laughs> I think your point like that this is a show that is heavy on the discourse on the discussion and also just like within the like the different pieces of the plot it's often dependent on like with the listening device hearing things that are not necessarily for the ears of the agents or or saying things or not saying things or you know saying things in a particular way so only somebody understands them like right like all of that and so then to have this episode where it's like like all of that goes away is fascinating. I also felt the other thing I was sort of like reacting to is I was kind of expecting a scene where we got not just like Philip being like, Oh, something's weird with Martha, but like I was expecting a scene where we like saw the fallout of like no longer having access to the listening device. We didn't get it in this episode. I suspect it'll, it'll be coming, but it was interesting to not have the other side of that yet to only have the sort of like absence of sound and to not have like, to not yet have the sort of like the gloss of what that absence means. Indeed. And I think one of the reasons for that is that because this is actually a moment where the FBI bros are good at their job, right? Like they immediately recognize what it is, recognize that they can't, say a single word about them having discovered it because they need to decide what to do. And maybe you want to like use this for counter Intel, like more directly. And, you know, Adderhold's taking the lead on this and the other two following them is like a very, you know, this is a, this is a kind of tables have turned moment as much as it's an Oh fuck moment, or at least it potentially is that kind of tables are turning moment. Not only is it a tables have turned moment, but it is a, 
like it comes back to all of this being so deeply dependent on Martha and on Clark's relationship to Martha. And like that, that is part of what like is fraying and it's been fraying for a couple of episodes now. And this is sort of like, you know, I have been joking around about like Martha's days are numbered. Spoiler alert. We'll get there too. But like the, like that fraying is like the minute that this was happening in the office, I was like, Oh God, like, Martha's really putting a literal nail in her coffin and she hadn't even gotten to the part where she's destroying the listening device yet. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Like there it's like, it's like weighty, I guess is, is what I would say. It is as which is captured by Walter Taffet telling Gad, you know, it could be the janitor who got fired three months ago. It could be one of your agents. It could be you. Right. Yeah. And like the delivery of that line. And then to, to your notes, Gad's <laughs> face when he says that where Gad seemingly both is like, fuck you, but also I kind of respect that you making that point yeah. at the same time um, is, well, a, is effective, I think. Absolutely. And the other thing that I kept thinking about, and maybe this is like for nothing, but like, you know, last episode, I believe Stan goes to Gad and he's like, something's up with Zinyeda. Like, I don't, I don't trust her. Right. This is like one episode ago or maybe two. And so there's already this sort of like seed of distrust that like has been planted by like Stan having this discussion. We know that like Stan doesn't really like love the relationship between Gad and Adderholt. There's like all of this, it's not animosity, but it's suspicion. Mm -hmm. And it feels like the, and again, this is a sort of like uh, um, turning on its head of the, the listening device then into silence, right? A, a, A sort of turning on its head of the dynamics that sustain an agency like the FBI, where it's like, they do have to be suspicious, but of other people, like of outside, it seems like when the suspicion gets turned in on one another, like that is like seeding the destruction. Right. And is also a kind of classic spy fiction, spy novel. Trope, totally. Right. Totally. Whether you're John le Carre or you're any number of other kind of like lesser spy. Daniel Silva. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, Martha's scene in the bathroom, destroying the oh. recording device incredibly acted by Allison Wright. Incredible. Because she doesn't even have, like, other people to play off of, right? Like the FBI bros do. Um, it's literally, she has to carry this entire performance by herself and, like, She's- convey, you know, both the what the fuck is happening to me? I'm going to be arrested. Yeah. What's the situation with Clark? To your point, like, the kind of ramifications of that are so yeah. enormous. And in control enough to destroy the device and run it and destroy it physically, run it underwater. So she's received enough like uh, by osmosis or whatever FBI training slash KGB training from Clark that she has even in this most, you know, frazzled experience she's ever had. Yeah. Potential, not, I mean, she's talked about other experiences, but like professional experience, um, which is also a personal experience, of course, because it's the Americans, right? (laughs) She has the, you know, wherewithal to carry out the mission, if you will. Well, and to, so one, like really well said, especially highlighting the way that Martha is not, she's literally playing off someone else's shoes and some like, some like toilet flushes. Like that's like, it's, it's all her. And she, like, so aptly conveys the, like, like, 
personal like loss in that moment that she's experiencing and also the like oh fuck like what is happening here like and it's all jumbled together in like such a beautiful way the thing that that like i kept thinking about was did clark like train her what to do if they ever find it because like so one answer is maybe, and I maybe I missed it. But the the other thing is we like, haven't seen it, right? I didn't think that we had seen it, but also to me, if he had trained her, like Martha's pretty dumb about a lot of like Clark stuff, right? But like, I feel like if he had been like, if they ever find this, like go and break it and run it underwater and this, this, and that, she would have been like. That seems like a little bit egregious, right? Like there's something about like the initiative that she takes has to be detached from, from like the directions from Clark because like otherwise it doesn't make the sort of like emotional coldness make as much sense later. It's such an excellent point, Danielle, and such an important connection because it really highlights how, you know, as you said, as oblivious as Martha can sometimes be with regards to Clark, she has picked up enough of Clark and Clark's sneakiness, like the totally bizarre legal lack thereof situation that they can't actually be married. Like all of the different things that she is consciously willing to overlook or Mm -hmm. tell herself otherwise, right. That gets stripped away in this moment of crisis for her. And Clark would want me to destroy this dot, 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 because he's himself a spy comes out, right. She, her body like literally takes over to do that and act it out and destroy the thing and run it underwater. And like exactly to that point, like her body takes over, but she's struggling with it. We see her shaking. Mm -hmm. We see her like, she's trying to break it when she's sitting on the toilet, she drops it. She pulls out like a pen or like a something to like, then break it. Then she's like, running it underwater and it's almost as though she's like going through these motions without like even being able to cognize them um and that's part of how it's acted too right i thought that this was like one of the best scenes that this show has had yeah and it's it's also the scene where martha becomes nina Right, because it's both her FBI training and her CIA, or her FBI, her training and the KGB training, like coming together to enact the thing that she does in a particular moment. Yeah, yeah, that's a yeah, and she succeeds. Right, like yeah, we get this long lingering shot while she is freaking out. Um, where the person who's like sweeping for bugs does her whole workstation. Very, very explicitly and directly, like a, some pretty cool camera work, like over her, over and around her purse itself, where we know the busted recording device yeah. is. So, like Martha destroyed it enough, and or the KGB had figured out a way that it wouldn't need, it wouldn't be detectable. But I think we're meant to believe it's the former. I think that that's right, and there's also this moment where it's unclear if something is being picked up because, like he the guy is like fiddling a little bit with the with the device and you see Martha's like you see Martha's body tense up and then like he's like okay like done and just like walks away and mm-hmm. my whole body tensed up too <laughs> <laughs> i'm i know that Martha's like Martha's done for but i'm like 
I don't want her to be done for. <laughs> I mean, especially after, to your point, like the scene where Allison Wright gets to do the same Martha she's been performing for three or two and a half seasons yeah. now. But then also we see the, you know, a different side of her in the like destructive Martha the spy mode. And maybe this is a good, a good place to move from like Martha in the office to Martha at home yes, and then Martha at home with Clark and all of that. (laughs) There's like, there's so much that happens. And again, like so many of these scenes are wordless, right? Like to your point earlier. And so Martha comes home and I think that like, she's suspicious of Clark because Walter Taffet is from the organ, the like committee or organization or the, the, the like, Office. Office, thank you. That Clark, like, works for in heavy (laughs) quotation marks. Correct. And Martha's, like, finally starting to, like, clue in that, like, maybe this guy isn't who he says he is, which is, like, hammered home. And she's like, let's go to your apartment right now. And I'm like, (laughs) literally, I was like, does Clark have an apartment? Like, (laughs) I get, like, he does, which is news to me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, if we want to run with this her body takes over, right? Martha the spy takes over point. Um, We do. (laughs) Thank you. Then (laughs) this is the like reaction against it, right? So it's like the recognition that, oh, I, or, you know, unconscious or conscious is a different question, but like the recognition on some level that she has been so trained by Clark and by the FBI to have done that, that when she gets home and like goes and checks the gun in the drawer and is like, suspicious about Clark and is like rifling through Clark's drawer and looks at the Kama Sutra. Clark then comes in and she's having none of it. Like no loveliness, no like affection, just a, we're going to your apartment right now. And crucially does not tell Clark what happened. Does not tell Clark that the busted ass receiver, which Clark asks about is in her purse, right? And says nothing. So it's like in this act of like rebelling against the expectation from Clark. Yeah. I think we can read also is Martha rebelling against the like instinct slash training that had been inculcated in her to destroy the thing in the first place as the Clark legend is unraveling. Well, and like to come back to build on that and to just come back to where we started this whole discussion with, if we think about like the, the role, the different objects play in all of this, we might think about how the presence of both Martha's like entanglement with the now busted recording device and the presence of that device in her house, um, which she is keeping a secret, which feels like a wild choice just in general, but like that. I respect it. No, no, no. I respect (laughs) it. But I'm like, again, Martha, we are literally counting the seconds until like there is a bullet in your head. If we think about the presence of that object in her, in her possession, we, we also might think about the way that presence is altering her, like her decisions, her like movements, her person. And so like that, like, she is like fundamentally changed by the presence mm. of an object and that her, like the exercise or articulation of her agency is it, it like changes because of that presence. Absolutely. And that takes us to Clark's apartment. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I mean, Clark in like full nerdy, like lovey mode. Is he like fake jovial as he walks in the door? 
and just like the shift, the coldness, right? To use the word that you that you did earlier, um, it's such a stark contrast. It's such a stark contrast, and like then there's also just like his apartment is cold, right? Like it could use a women's a woman's touch, and it's like oh, like I can't. I, at that moment, I couldn't decide. Like, is Philip just like too in his own? like ish with Elizabeth to like realize how fucked he is in this. Uh, really going to have to put an explicit tag on this. Oh, episode. don't worry. It's a default on every episode. <laughs> We're good. We're covered. Oh. We can say whatever the fuck we want, Danielle. Amazing. I mean, we have to. Hasn't stopped us before. <laughs> no. Um, but like I, my first thought was like, does he not realize like how deep in this he is? But then it's like, oh, no, 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 he does. Because eventually he does, like, say, he he asks her multiple times. He says to Elizabeth, he, like, leaves. Like, he, you would have to be pretty dense to not realize it. But also, there's, like, something about the... There's something about the switch into Martha mode that Philip as Clark m- makes after the, like, coldness with Elizabeth that is, like... There's a parallel there, and it's also really challenging to watch. An excellent reading, because I think that Philip, as much as he resents on some level what he has to do as Clark and the deception of Martha and all of this, for him it's also an escape from the bullshit of his life, like in in particular the season, the like what do we do about Paige sort of question. Mm-hmm. So I think you're exactly right that he's not clued in or doesn't have like spy radar, um, you know, on as high when he walks in the door or when they first get to quote unquote his apartment. But at some point he does make that switch. Right. And like his spy instincts kick back in and he is suspicious of what Martha is thinking about. And he like, you know, lightly manipulates and tries to interrogate her. Like, so there's that like sinister switch from it just keeps getting better and better. And we don't want to be normal like other couples, like standard kind of Clark offerings. Yeah. To the like, well, now I need to really work Martha. And I thought that tonight I wasn't going to have to. Yeah, like that. This was going to be his break, and yet that was exactly my thought. He like the way he says, "I'm going to go yeah. to Martha's yeah, yeah, to yeah, Elizabeth." Yeah. Is he's he's feigning that he's resigned to having to do this, but he's but, but Matthew Reese is also conveying that he's like, I got to get away from this fucking shit storm at home, and how pissed I am about the page stuff and the weekly reports and all of that. Well, and like, and oh, he goes straight into like another shit storm with about a bigger one, like a more threatening one to himself yeah, and his person that, um, with the listening device that he like doesn't have the details of yet. Yep. But like mm-hmm. the thing that's the thing I think that's like so interesting is like, Elizabeth clocks that immediately. She knows that it's not his night to go to Martha's because when Uh it's his night, he doesn't have to say that he's going. Correct. Um, Or he says like, I should, or like, you know, for whatever reason. Um, And so she knows immediately that he doesn't need to go. And she like, doesn't really, she's just like, okay, like I, I, this is your mode of avoidance and and that's what you're doing. And I know that that's what you're doing. And I'm not going to stop doing what I was doing. And like, here we are at this impasse. Would you say that power is indeed everywhere? 
it's kind from of every like direction. A, it's kind of like a snow globe. <laughs> is power in that garage opener that's like on the <laughs> on the lid? Yes, it is because the opening of the door allows the power to keep flowing. There we go. <laughs> I, I didn't know it was. I didn't know we were getting electricity corner with objects is, are important. Is, the the garage opener is crucial. <laughs> I feel like there's also some Sean Hanley influence on this oh like, my garage door. No, no, Sean, no, 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 no. So first of all, don't worry. Everybody really comes to this podcast for like anecdotes about my family. Correct. <laughs> so especially as they intersect with Harry Styles. We'll get there. <laughs> okay, good. Um, first of all, my parents' house has like a detached garage, but yeah. my dad's a carpenter, so it's been his shop the entire my entire life. Mm-hmm. So the there is no like mechanic. There's no like electronic opener. There's no. We've never had a garage door opener. We've never had that gadget because you need like a key to get into the shop because it has sure. like a lot of very dangerous and also expensive equipment. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but like a garage door opener is a thing that I like pined for when I was younger. <laughs> Cause I was like, Ooh, that's what rich people have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we did not have that. So no garage door opener. Although it isn't like your read on like that could be a Sean Hanley thing is not totally off because my dad does fucking love a gadget. He hasn't, <laughs> Uh, my parents' refrigerator, like, doesn't have um, – the uh, the upstairs one doesn't have a freezer, and it doesn't have an ice maker. So my dad bought, like, an ice maker that sits on the counter, and that he just – every day, whenever he uses it, he'll, like, put it in his coffee. He's like, I just – I just love it so much. He's had it for two years. Every (laughs) single time. It's like the ice maker is so great. Meanwhile, in the middle of the night, it's waking all of us up. But my dad is like deaf in one ear from being Mm -hmm. a carpenter and being around machinery. He's like, I just love that ice maker. If we want to start a gadget corner segment with Sean Hanley, where he can talk about either the devices in his life or in the life of the Americans, I'm open to this idea for the Patreon. We got to monetize it. Oh, I mean, Sean Hanley, pro-monetizing. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, obviously, he gets a cut of the profits on yeah. Gadget Corner. He loves a gadget, and he loves, like, uh, he loves gear. Like, we, <laughs> we've got, like, ocean kayaks. He's got a stand-up paddleboard. Like, he loves gear. He, so we can build it out. Yeah. Yeah. With, like, Gadget and Gear Corner with Sean Hanley. Mm-hmm. In. I, th- I think it's just a separate podcast, actually, that you and your dad do. <laughs> my dad. I don't, don't want to colonize it for the not quite great books Patreon that doesn't exist. My dad definitely does not know what a podcast is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, that's been our, our Sean Hanley um, meandering. <laughs> Yeah, this is I this is a like primo episode where there's been extreme meandering and some of our like best detailed conversations. Both and one million percent and off air I've got a Sean Hanley anecdote, but it's not for everybody's ears. Not for everybody's ears. Okay, so we should talk about Philip and Elizabeth and their state of their fighting over Paige. Yeah. And there are multiple layers to this throughout this episode. Yeah. Because it starts with this very strange opening shot 
right? Where there's like the um, like faint radio of the BBC that Philip is listening to about the war in Afghanistan, right? But the camera is like pointed towards the sky, like towards the stars yeah. in like a nighttime scene at the Jennings house, pans down to their house to Philip in the basement. Back which in the basement. A, basement has a window, we discover. Which seems bad for spycraft security, but, like, what do I know? Well, it makes me feel like he's not in the laundry room part of the basement. Okay, yeah, good point, good point. So, like, I, but I was with you, I was like... Because, I don't know, like, I think even Stan Beeman would recognize if, like, why is there this red darkroom light happening in the Jennings basement? They've never mentioned their photography interests to me. But I wonder if it's, like, so my parents' house... Oh, we're back in the Hanley house. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever left? No. We're always already in in my parents' house. My parents' house is, like, built into the side of a hill. So, like, you walk into the house on the ground floor... And then when you walk downstairs, the sort of like back of the house is open and has windows and doors to the backyard. But the front of the house, that's the basement is like in the ground, like the the foundation is in the ground. So I wonder if it's something like that, where like part of their basement has like a window to the outside and the part of the basement that they hopefully do the spy stuff in doesn't, (laughs) but like... Who knows? Stan is bad at this part of his job. So, like, he might be like, oh, I guess Philip has taken up photography and never asked him about it. Yeah. So, we have this camera shot panning down to Philip. Cut to knocking on Paige's door. Paige tells him that, like, Elizabeth took her to, like, a predominantly black area of Washington, D.C., told her about Gregory, found out even more about what Elizabeth told her, like, including that, you know, Gregory was killed by police, at which point Henry comes in and is like, you had a friend that was killed by the police, and Philip is So much Henry in this episode. I know, by, like, by American standards, so much Henry. Um, And Philip is, you know, and this is a parallel with Martha, right? He has to both, like, knock in his spy instincts to hide stuff from his kids. And he is so mad at Elizabeth in that moment and like acting that out on his face at the same time that he is trying to like, you know, explain himself to Paige because Paige is accusingly being like, well, why did you stop? Why aren't you doing this anymore? Right. And Paige is, you know, why did you stop believing in this? Which of course could be a question that Elizabeth, would and in fact has asked him about his devotion and commitment to the Soviet Union and to the cause before, mm-hmm. right? So like there's there's that's also antagonizing him on that level, one presumes. So he's just all sorts of, <laughs> of angry, goes into the bedroom, is ready to be mad at Elizabeth about this. And what is Elizabeth doing? She's coding her weekly report about Paige for the center. And like she just sort of like says it you know it's not she knows it's gonna be a big deal right and she's like well i'm just gonna i'm not gonna hide it i'm just gonna put it i'm just gonna say it and and like that comes back around right when she's like i told you that i was moving ahead with it i told you that this is what i was doing like this is in their discussion um a little bit later and it's like she's not wrong but also she knows that she's wrong right like she knows that by philip standards like she has like transgressed some kind of line that he has drawn in the sand that like basically gabriel has pushed her over 
the by Philip standard is extremely important in what you just said, 100%. right? And this is like the, and this is the, the push and pull of their marriage is allegory for like push and pull about politics or spycraft or whatever. Yes. Um, among the many other things, but like just on a simple, there's a lot of sad Matthew Reese and angry Matthew Reese in this episode. Um, and including like, never have two like hot people going in and out of the shower, <laughs> like had, more anger and like resentment towards one another than them swapping in and out the next morning in the bathroom. Like they're both just like buck ass naked looking great. And like, there is zero connection whatsoever. Well, and like, here's my question, or at least like uh, the initial shot of Philip in the shower made it seem like he was sitting down in the, in the tub, which I don't think he ultimately is, but there was something like really sad about that. Yeah. I mean, Matthew Reese says Philip, like, perfected sad Philip face. I'm into it. <laughs> I was into I, sad Philip in the shower. <laughs> I'm not usually into Philip. That's true. Um, well, his, they finally, like, let Matthew Reese's hair, like, be more good looking. And this episode in particular is a, is a shift. But, um, but even, like, you know, the previous scene, the question that he asks Elizabeth, which Elizabeth answers kind of honestly, where, Philip is like, well, am I just going to come home one day to discover that Paige now knows who we are or what we really do? And Elizabeth is like, honestly, I don't know. And she's right. Maybe. But she's right, and she has more agency over that decision than she's willing to grant in that particular conversational moment, as witnessed by her apology at the end of the episode. Yeah, I mean, like, and I think you get a little bit of that in the body language where she's like, I'm going to claim this, but I'm also like, I know that I'm walking a fine line here. Like, and so I, like, I wasn't so surprised that, like, she kind of came around to it or was, like, more honest about it at the end of the episode. Because you, at least I felt like you could see her knowing that she was like walking a fine line and not wanting, like not wanting to back down, but also not wanting to like dig a knife in, you know? Yeah. And I think she recognizes that she's walking that fine line and much like... Martha has her resentments that are acted out in this episode. Philip has his resentments that are acted out in this episode. Elizabeth has her own resentments as well. And that yeah. really kind of comes through in a, the conversation when she first meets Ruben and Kobo, yes. the Afri the um, African national Congress um, member who is in DC to lure out uh, Todd and Eugene Venter. Um, and then the, conversation she has about that conversation with Philip yeah. uh, afterwards, you know, cause she makes this joke and says it with such disdain when she's like, my kids think I, that we run a small family business and her and Ruben are just like laughing their asses off about that. Um, you know? And so there's like, and I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, the parallels between Ruben and Gregory here. I know we want to get to that in gloss a little bit, but like, yeah. that's very real in that, you know, there's Elizabeth seems in some ways more herself with Ruben, who she's never met before in her life well, to then go argue with Philip about that conversation, you know, later that day in American time. Yeah. And like, I mean, the, the thing I wrote in my notes is, is Elizabeth going to sleep with this guy? <laughs> like, and which I think like, is part of the parallel to Gregory, but it's also just, there's something 
about the way Elizabeth has chemistry with people so easily that I think makes her so good at her job. Yeah. Right. Like where Philip, it sometimes feels a little bit, it feels put on like with Elizabeth, it doesn't feel as put on. Right. Like, and, and I think there's like something about the exchange with Ruben. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel put on. And I don't think that it is. And then it's just like fascinating to watch that get, um, kind of crumpled up into this like ball of tension that she just serves up to Philip. And she kind of serves it up like, like in a, in the same nonchalant way that she's like, I'm just writing a report on page. Like that's what I'm doing. Right. His four sons know what he does and, you know, know he might die for the cause. And Philip's like, is that a good thing? Philip's like, fuck you. I know what you're doing. I know what you're trying to do here. Uh And like, you're good at it, but also I hate it. Like there's a little bit of that energy to it. Yeah. I mean, in Elizabeth's, you know, the way she describes the situation are her, again, her resentment about Philip's hesitation towards Paige comes through so strongly, yeah. right? But also the recognition that there's something fucked up about it, what she wants as well, because she says that the situation is horrible, admirable, and brave. Right. Which like, to me- She wishes she could be admirable and brave. Which- the- While recognizing the horribleness that comes with it. Which, like, that to me then, like, brings us to Philip coming home and, like, the, the, the brave piece is, like, I had been worried that Philip wasn't going to say anything about Misha, that that was just going to be a thing that, like, Gregory was going to tell Elizabeth or it was going to come out later. And, like, there's something about the, like, I don't know. Elizabeth is kind of scary. There's something, there's something brave about like the way Philip just like lays it all out. And it's, and it's, I think significant that they're in bed, they're embracing like all of the like key stuff is happening in this room with them this whole season. And not only are they embracing, but Elizabeth is turned away from Philip. She's asleep facing the other direction. Yeah. Philip is like, all right, I'm going to maybe wake her up, but if she doesn't wake up, it's okay. Yeah. And she kind of wakes up and like flips over and cuddles him. Yeah. Right. So like, there's like a literal turning in that space, like a turning from, you know, I'm thinking about, I want to say this was in episode three, right? This conversation that happens about the gift for what they're going to get paid for her birthday. Yeah. Where Elizabeth has her back towards Philip. Like she's naked with her back. Yeah. Yeah. Philip, yeah. 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 Um, while he's sitting up in the bed reading time magazine. Right. Yeah. And here there's like the, from turning in an opposite direction towards him that yeah. happens that to your point, like creates the space where that kind of vulnerability and that I have a son, you know, from when we were kids, which is an interesting line, thinking about Paige, thinking about and Kobo's sons, thinking about Kimmy, like, yeah, you know, thinking about the, what we found out last episode or the episode before about the like sex training, sex work, like coerced sex as part of their training yeah. regimen that at least Philip and Elizabeth also, as we know from the first season had, you know, experienced. Yeah. And this is also like, we don't get it in the, we don't get it in the bedroom. We get it the next morning, but Philip is like, something is up with Martha. No shit, Philip. <laughs> <laughs> um, but maybe we want to sort of wrap up this discussion by touching on the sort of final. What a fucking mission. scene. 
What a scene. Oh my God. And like to come back to where we started with the objects, right? It's like you've got the walk, you got the cars, the horns, the walkie talkies, but you also have the bag of bread that the like getaway driver that Elizabeth shoots is. And there was something about like, oh, these are my baguettes that just like made the whole (laughs) scene like, oh man, you've got the wrong objects, lady. Or like the newspaper stands yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Um, that Philip and Eugene Venner like scuffle into and knock over yeah. um, before like the dry, the getting away. But yeah, the the physicality of that scene that's not only about like bodies, but also about the non-human objects that well, facilitate the-, the way those bodies um, or, or act upon those bodies. Yeah. Yeah. And like uh, act upon those bodies, but facilitate the, or like facilitate the paths upon which the bodies yep. move mm-hmm. and whether the bodies move, which gets us back to the bug at the beginning, which like kind of starts all of this. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and we end the episode with things still being very much in motion. So, mm. um, Wait, literally, yeah. they're like in a car. Hans is like, Oh, thank God. And I'm like, what are you so fucking nervous about? You literally just said to be before and like, get out of your Hans. Yeah. I mean, I think it closes on Hans is yes. like, look in his like holy Stop. shit which i mean you know so in one of the arguments i think this was while they're in the garage yeah. you know elizabeth says yeah. han i wish i had a few more months with hans before yeah. this mission and that actually really comes through like hans does his job but he's like so overwhelmed by this essential but very tiny and not particularly risky role that he has within it and also there's this you know childlike like look of like amazement on his face about what has happened which again like hans's surrogate spy child child right if hans isn't ready does that mean elizabeth also knows Paige isn't ready like these are part of the dynamics as well i was just gonna say like hans isn't ready and you get that when they have this exchange in the car um philip is like yeah, but it'll, it's good that he'll be, as long as we keep him far away, it'll be fine, which is what they do. But like for me, that was, that was a callback with Annalise for Philip, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that was yeah. where Phil, the misstep that Philip had. And so, and of course, it's like the yeah. Lucia, Elizabeth stuff, like all of those pieces, like, and so all of those people being unprepared, I think get funneled through Hans, but they're also funneled in different ways through Paige and through, Kimmy, and maybe also through Matthew. <laughs> and maybe also through Matthew. I'm like, is Matthew right? going to yeah. be a spy? What's happening here? <laughs> um, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. he could literally be a spy and Stan would not know it. <laughs> it's a great point. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a spinoff. <laughs> I'll, I'll be developing that fanfic on our <laughs> Patreon. <laughs> Excellent. Um, wow. I mean, that the last scene is just like blocked so effectively. This yeah. plan is like... Not the most well thought out plan ever. Let's all we're in sit the middle at this of diner. Yeah, we're in like the middle of the middle of the day outside this diner. Like, surely somebody saw two grown ass men fighting, and one of them gets shoved into the back of a moving van. <laughs> like, so- and someone else is shot, and the van just like peels out. Like, <laughs> talk about conspicuous. Yeah, and I mean, I and I get the like, you know, the question of how much risk are the Jennings having to take being asked to take are those two different things yeah the kind of constant like current that's running under all of this like very specific spy missions but like 
as like a scene that is blocked, there's a good use of space in this episode, right? Like you have a good sense of how the different people are connected and where all of these things are happening in relation to one another in space. Yeah. Um, so I, I appreciate, you know, I guess like good direction by, uh, by Stan. <laughs> I mean, that feels like as good a note as any to wrap up yeah. the main discussion. Great. I'll save my thoughts on the outfits in this oh. scene for the 80s. I cannot wait. I have lots of them. <laughs> okay, let's go to the dossier. You've got a question for me? Yes. I Did you, I hope, have the thought, was it in your notes, that when Martha like handles the gun in the drawer that we have an actual Chekhov's gun, Martha's gun (laughs) now active and in play to a much greater extent. It might as well be hanging on the wall. It's not hanging on the wall. It's in the drawers, but like it's hanging on the wall. I did not have that thought, but in my notes, I do have Chekhov's Kama Sutra. (laughs) (laughs) Much better one. Oh my god! Again, like Martha, TikTok, TikTok. Um, uh, so here are my. So obviously, Martha's days are numbered. The ubiquitous refrain of this podcast, like that's where we're at. But here are like two other things. The first Please. is, I we get that scene with Martha in the elevator, like af- the day after with Walter Taffet, and her eyes just go wide, and and I'm like, okay, so Martha tells like Walter Taffet something maybe about Clark, maybe about her putting the bug there, her husband telling her, I don't know. I feel like probably what happens is she just asks if someone named Clark works in his office, but like the more conspiracy theorist of me, of my brain is like Martha tells him, Martha confesses something to this man. And like, again, it just like puts those nails in her coffin. This is a John, no comment. Okay. Um, it's a, it's a, it's, I'm taking notes in the dossier of dossiers, I but you. I will, I will no comment that indeed. Okay. I'm, and- I'm trying to be mindful of not tapping on my keyboard as much in an audible <laughs> way uh, for our vast hordes of listeners to hear. That's totally fair. How, how nice and like considerate of you. My other dossier thing, uh, not Matthew, but, um, I believe I have said a couple of times that I think there's like someone else. It's not Zinjeda, but like someone else is a double agent um, in the FBI. And like, maybe it's Gene. Gene seems suspicious. He's got like, even before like Walter Taffet is like, who's that guy? And when did he start here? And obviously Martha knows exactly like the date and time. Um, But Gene just like looks suspicious. Like, all right. We've never seen him before. Something's up with him. Is he a double agent? Maybe. I know there's a double agent lurking that we don't know of. Maybe it's Gene. No comment. Okay. Those are my... (laughs) I think that's all for the dossier for now. All right. Let us go to class. And I want to turn the floor over to you for... (laughs) I mean, Noah Emmerich, you know, I guess to his credit, is like not directing an episode where Stan comes off in a good light or anything. This is a Stan, even though we have not talked about him so much yet, this is a Stan-heavy episode. Stan's doing a lot of acting in this episode. Noah Emmerich is directing (laughs) himself, which feels aggressive. Um, (laughs) But here, I just want to read my notes, and then we'll we'll dive into this. Please. Um, Stan doesn't like Adderholt. 
quote, he's a black guy. He's good at what he does. He's just too, end quote. In all caps from me, racist. Stan is good at being a white supremacist because he is one. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a dragging of of our boy Stan. But here's the other thing, like Stan and Adderhold are having this discussion. Stan's like, "Oh, I don't like, I don't like." He's telling Philip after no one wants pizza, which is bonkers. But he's telling Philip, <laughs> he's like. Oh, like, I don't, this guy, like, I don't, I don't like this guy. Then he starts to say, like, he's a black guy and he's just two. And I'm like, okay, like, I already was, like, suspicious when you were like, I don't like this guy who's good at his job. Uh, like, very good at it, <laughs> as evidenced by this episode. Um, and by the fact that he's, like, no more files on top of male robot. <laughs> like, yep. Like, I mean- Stan is like, I mean, the, the, the word he doesn't say, but like white supremacist, white supremacism wants him to speak. Yeah. Right. Is uppity. Yeah. Right? Like he wants 100%. to call Adderholt an uppity black man. Yeah. Like that's what he wants to say and communicate. A hundred percent. That he's like above his station or something mm-hmm. or like trying to, to punch above his weight. And absolutely uppity is absolutely the right word. And like. And yet Stan knows he can't say that racist trope aloud. Which, again, just, like, doubles down on the white yes, supremacy point. Exactly. Like, exactly. <laughs> right? And so it's like there's that. And then this, like, they're having – that conversation with Philip happens after Stan and Adderhold have a conversation about Nina in which <laughs> this is – I cannot believe this conversation. Or I can believe it. It's sad that much I can believe this conversation. I, like, they're, first of all, they're talking about illegals, which felt like very gross language. But then Adderholt goes, he thought he was running me. He's, like, telling Stan about, you know, someone who he was, like, engaging with as, like, as somebody who was embedded. He thought he was running me, like, the illegal. And... Stan is basically, like, does not clock that, like, that's absolutely what was happening with him and Nina. And my notes just say, in all caps, wake up, Stan, exclamation point. And, like, the point is just that, like, part of what Stan doesn't like about Adderholt is that Adderholt is good at his job. But the other thing is, like, it's not just that. It's that Adderholt has Stan's number, and Stan does not like that someone sort of like has him figured out when he doesn't have himself figured out. I couldn't have said it any better. And I mean, that conversation just crystallized that so much because you have Stan's response to Adderhold, you know, being like the Asian thought he was running me. And you're like, that's obviously what was happening with Nina. That's Adderhold gets on some level, even though Stan doesn't. And all Stan can muster is that that was, that sounds complicated, right? Like, what the fuck Stan, come on. Like, you know, maybe take that thought one step further, but that's second in terms of Stan obliviousness and <laughs> like idiocy in this scene. Yeah. Because Adderold asks him what Nina was like and Stan's descriptor is straightforward. I couldn't. I like the whole, then when Stan was dissing Adderold to Philip, I was like, I'm so mad because Adderold is the only one here who's good at things. I mean, he, Gad got on some level what Stan's fucked up with Nina was about, but Adderhold's having no direct interaction with the moment gets more about it. And like when Stan says that Nina was straightforward, 
I'm not sure to what extent or if there even is a difference between him actually and deeply at his core believing that. Yeah. Or he's just saying that so that he doesn't have to talk about it with Adderholtz. And, like, I don't know if those are two different things or not, but, like, that was the question that I had rolling around. Yeah. And, and I don't think I, like, I think at this point, this many seasons in, this much of, like, Nina would stand. It's, like, I think you're right to kind of not be able to draw a distinction between those questions. Yeah. Yeah. What else? What else about Stan? There's this like there's so much Stan. What else is what else is in our craw about Stan? Stan so Stan uh is lonely, but it's a night for Matthew to come over. Stan is lonely is also a descriptor of every episode. <laughs> Stan is especially lonely. <laughs> um on the night that Matthew's coming over. So he and Sandy have a conversation and like, you know. And Stan acknowledges, and this is like the one good thing that he says, it's like he acknowledges that maybe it was a little weird for him to like invite Sandy to come with him to Chicago for this funeral. And Sandy's like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not your wife. And Stan, like, in real, like, he's he's the 80s version of the well actually guy. Oh my God. Um, like, Stan, <laughs> well actually, um, Sandy, in this moment, it's like, technically. Oh my god! And then that of that leads Sandy to finally be like, "We gotta fucking stop this right this goddamn minute. We're gonna put, you know, do something about that," as she says. And like Stan has like sad hangdog look, you know, even more <laughs> on his you know blonde ass face. That's like totally right. I like I couldn't have said it better myself. Stan is like the eighties version of well, actually, is like my new favorite thing you've ever said. Um, I, it's I one of my prepared lines for today. I, I must. Do I that. mean, great job preparing. <laughs> but then this also leads into like this attempted bonding with Matthew, yeah, which is also sad, Stan, <laughs> but also sad, Matthew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, we don't for you know under totally understandable reasons, we don't get much emotional life of Matthew or much Matthew of anything. Um, we got the band and like, he was flirting with the, you know, the minor character who was like the, you know, this crush band leader yeah. um, or whatever in season one, but we don't get a lot of Matthew, but yeah, like this is actual kind of bonding. I mean, granted, like, you know, hetero male bonding is like a fucked up world, but <laughs> um, they actually do kind of bond. Well, yeah, and, like, we get this sort of, like, I wouldn't say sweet, but maybe, like, open moment where Stan's, like, giving Matthew maybe more details than he's, like, yeah. able to give anybody else mm -hmm. besides Adderholt, right? Yeah. So, like, that's kind of interesting. I don't know. There was, like, something sweet about this moment, and also I was like, Matthew, you need a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> he still has his cool vest, though. Thank God. I mean, CS yeah, stands. I got pretty screwed up. Like, you know, that's the yeah. that's a, that's you know an important thing for him to say. But you're right that like he goes into more detail than we have witnessed, say, him going into with regards to Sandy. Well, yeah, about things that actually, which of which of course is like his masculinity and his sexism like shining through. Like he can't admit weakness to Sandy because he has to be protector guy. Yeah. But there's something about like the already fractured, like yeah. unknowing, you know, witness the 
uh, previous or two episode ago conversation with Philip about how he doesn't know Matthew anymore. Yeah. That like provides enough opening yeah. where he can be like, yeah, this guy that I took down murdered some people. And thank God he didn't, I was never asked to do that and put in that position. Yeah. And just to like, to maybe add on to it a little bit to like uh, link it to things that have happened across a few episodes is like, we keep getting these instances, whether it be Stan and Matthew or or we had it last week with Jim and Kimmy, like where the person who is supposed to be the like partner or the like expected conversation partner, like isn't the one getting the like the truth or the info dump. And like, so these characters are like finding ways to like unload their guilt in some way or like the stuff that they need to get off their chest but they're they're doing it like they're they're unloading to people who are like not the likely like recipient of that and there's just yeah. something really interesting about like that question of like who can you tell the truth to and like mm. what is mm-hmm. the truth like what does the what does the truth mean to Matthew as opposed to Sandy like i don't know it's just like it's kind of interesting and the classic question of the Americans, which is how do truths about the nation spying, police work, infiltration, you know, cloak and dagger yeah. shit become translated and like caught up in and fucked up by the like psychodynamics of kinship. One million percent. Okay, let's let's uh we've got a lot of other stuff in glass. So let's get to some, some of, of them. Some of them are very small and trivial, but not this one, but not some of the listen, later ones come here small Stan, and trivial. Stan the racist and weird dad just like needed a little bit more uh Absolutely. discussion. Yeah. Where do we go next? So this is, you know, we only get uh this first episode here with Ruben and Kobo, um, played by Dwayne A. Thomas. You know, and this is a point that you brought up before the show and we're kind of gesturing at earlier, Danielle, which is the way that like perhaps from Elizabeth's perspective, we have like another black man to come in to stand yeah. in for like person she can open up to be real with like be attracted to potentially on some level yeah and but there's a but there's the risk you were pointing out of like a certain kind of sameness that the show is ascribing yeah. to Ruben and Kobo's character as to Gregory's character yeah there's like I mean there's like a version of this podcast episode where we just like we start with Stan's racism and we sort of yeah. like unpack all the racism and like uh, active and passive in the in the episode and like maybe there's a version of that where like Ruben as sort of stand in or or parallel to Gregory after we get this Gregory reference in the last episode there's like something about that that feels a little bit off so I'm interested to see where this like if and how this character develops and like the the contrast or like the way it shifts away from the, the, the Gregory piece, like just another like black male activist, like popping yeah. into Elizabeth's life. Yeah. I mean, we do get a little bit more detail about him himself, right? He's fairly high up in the ANC. He's like number three or four on the, both the government's most wanted list yeah. um, back in South Africa. So like, this is an incredibly risky mission. And then Cobra recognizes that, right? And yeah. Just, like he says, you know, I know, you know, I know my sons know that, like, I might not be coming back. Yeah, which, like, gets us to the conversation that Philip and Elizabeth have, which, like, ends up to be this, like, it's a problem, but it also is an opening, which I yep. appreciate. 
All right. I think we have a couple more frivolous glass notes. Okay. First of all, I was surprised that Clark even had an apartment. I was worried. He had it in his back pocket. I was worried. And it like, I was like, as they're walking in, I'm like, is this like Nina's safe house? Like, where are they going? Because <laughs> it's, it's, and it's also, I, I, I think I'm correct in saying it is different than the apartment that yeah. Philip had when he had moved out. No, it's not one, that correct? apartment. Okay. It, I just wanted to yeah. make sure. But it's like a bachelor pad that like does not have <laughs> anything, which I don't know. I'm, I just was like impressed that he even had an apartment. Philip's yeah. good at his job. <laughs> I guess. Um, I guess. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, the fact that like Clark Philip could pivot to this apartment so quickly. I, good for him, I guess. Impressive. Um, let's talk a little bit, just like very quickly about like the pizza situation. Oh, I'm, this is, imp- as we mentioned at the beginning, this is also an important theme in this episode. A- another object that impacts the agency <laughs> of people. Paige not liking pizza is terrible vibes. I just want to, what teenager doesn't want pizza? Like Paige, like enough. John, even, I know that you want to make sh- a church reference here, but please do not. <laughs> I do. Um, that's for the Patreon. That is only my Patreon. It's the one that you don't have access to where I say more things that make you uncomfortable about all of the Jesus that goes on it's in this season of the American. JMOC, John McMahon's <laughs> opinions on Christ. <laughs> that's for the real ones. <laughs> if, if anyone gets that, you like if the multi layer reference. <laughs> We will, well, if you get that reference, we will have you, you have on as a, a guest, guest on the yeah, podcast. On the podcast, <laughs> no doubt about it. <laughs> um, so. What else about pizza? Uh, you know, your point that you made before we started recording is that, like, even if Paige had already eaten, she's 14 and, like, would have had a, a slice. John, I had pizza within 30 seconds of getting to New York, and then I had another slice of pizza when I got to Brooklyn. <laughs> Correct. As as is appropriate. I'm not even I wasn't even hungry, but I was like, I need to eat pizza. So <laughs> And so, so this is not the only like sin against pizza if you again oh. in this episode. That like I think it's Philip, but either Philip or Stan doesn't eat the crust. I can't. I, There's just I like can't. some like lonely I can't. gross crust just like sitting in the pizza box. I would eat that when crust right Stan now. And Philip are chatting. I'm I'm angry. Okay, we have to stop talking about pizza. I'm so mad. Oh, my God. So we discover in this episode that the FBI has really nice bathrooms. So Martha, like, has, you know, not necessarily the most spacious stall, but, like, there's some nice, there's some great light fixtures above, around the sink. I don't know if you noticed this. Great light just fixtures. Like, very yeah, high just like ceilings. Great, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You get a really so. nice, like, really high camera shot. High ceilings. Yeah. Very, yeah, not luxurious, but but very like well kept. Yeah, absolutely. So perfect, perfect place to destroy a bunch of uh, espionage equipment. <laughs> um, this is this is where we really need the Sean Hanley gadget oh, update. Oh yeah. my god, Sean Hanley would be all over it, all over it. Um, there's also lots of side eye in this episode, like an aggressive amount, even more than normal. And I'm here for every single time the camera goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth between Gad and, and Adderholt and Stan. It's like they go around that circle like 17 times. It's like, <laughs> what are you guys still looking at each other for? Like, get out of here. 
but well, I, mean, I was into it. No Emmerich was directing, right? Like he had to make sure to get we that scene in any possible way. Um, but yeah, I mean, like obviously Carrie Russell, apparently America's one of America's greatest side eye, eye rolling actors. Honestly. And that only intensifies in this episode. Into it. Um, okay. What else? We've got cinematography. Yes. <laughs> Tell us. Lots of, lots of things here. Uh, the camera work on the bug sweep, I enjoyed, um, you know, the way it like speaking kind of objects acting on one another. It's like almost as if the like device is acting on the camera itself yeah. in the way that it's filmed. I really enjoyed that. Uh, the lighting when Martha like walks back into her apartment. So all of the lights are off in the apartment. Mm-hmm. So we only get like the outside light coming in mm-hmm. and like, it's this cool, like greenish hue. And of course, like when you have a like woman of about Martha's age walking into like an apartment or hotel room lit externally from green, like I think we can always assume it's a Hitchcock vertigo reference. And that's what I assumed as well in that particular moment. Uh, what else do we have here in cinematography minute? We've got um, the, the lonely stand oh, yeah. shot <laughs> um, before Matthew gets over where he is at the island in his kitchen. Yeah. Um, and just the like dividing wall where there's the kitchen that's uh, with the light on that he's sitting in. There's the dining room on the other side. And like, there's the frame, the door frame, like cutting the screen in half right there. So that you have the dining room on the left side in dark. You have the kitchen where Stan is being sad and lonely and light on the right. Um, so which is like kind of obvious, but like a nice, a nice touch nonetheless. And lastly, in cinematography minute, it's been more than a minute, but we have to talk about the lighting and like the use of the shadows. Um, when Clark slash Philip comes back and snuggles into bed with Elizabeth, just like really, really, really great lighting work in there and throughout the entire episode. So Good direction, Noah Emmerich. Great yeah. work. Great work, you know, director of photography <laughs> and the light and the lighting crew in this episode. So yeah. We feel into it. We're we're pro Noah Emmerich as director. Apparently. <laughs> All right, let's get into bar of nostalgia. Oh my god. I've been <laughs> waiting for an hour and ten minutes to do this. Okay. Uh I'm just gonna let you rip on Philip Corner. Okay, do we want to do his, like, quote-unquote Jack wig or the outfit at the end of the episode? Where should, where should we start? Uh, let's start with the Jack wig. Okay, so the Jack wig is, like, I wrote down two descriptors for this, like, poofy, uh, like, feathered, blondish, dirty blonde wig that he wears as, like, the defense contractor consultant. One is... Did Donald Trump inspire this wig? <laughs> and two, this is like Nebishi Gordon Gecko wig. <laughs> Into it? So that's, <laughs> I mean, it was, I was put this way. It, it's not the minor character of the week, but that wig could be that the wig character could, of the week. A million, I fully agree. And I hadn't thought about the Donald Trump. Uh, I'm not wrong. Inspiration, but you're not wrong at all. You're literally yeah. not wrong. All right. What about the final scene? Oh my look? God. I have so many thoughts about this look in the final scene. A, this is, I think, the sexiest Philip disguise. Like, Scott Berkland knocked out of the number one spot by, <laughs> I went to the Cure concert and I'm still hungover at the <laughs> diner the next morning. That's what it's giving. It's giving, I was at the Cure concert. And I, 
absolutely adore it. As you pointed out, like Matthew Reese looks great with the looks eyeliner. Um, you have like the weathered, slightly weathered leather jacket. You've got the hair, the hair that's like in, in, on its own, the hair doesn't work, but like as a whole deal, it works really, really well. I can't get enough of, uh, of this outfit. Um, pure <laughs> core Matthew Reese, Philip. I was into it and I'm, yeah, I was, I was here for it. And also like here for like the cure hangover is like such a good way to think about it. Thank you. But also Thank you. that was my other prepared line for the evening. You did a great job preparing. But the thing I was thinking about is like, I, he looked like someone from the eighties that like, you would sort of like not do a suspicious double take of, but do like a, Oh God, double take like of the, of the guy he's trying to like grab. And so then it's surprising that that guy like is expecting him. So right. which is, which I think like worked nicely for the episode. It absolutely did. So, yeah. and so I did check uh, like given the timeline of the episode and the timeline of the cure, like my reference did actually work. It, it checks out historically, which, uh, I don't know if we care about it or not, but I was proud. Of I mean, it. you care about, so I'm into it. I, I do care so. about it. Yeah. So we're, we're like, you know, the, the crucial cure album pornography, like came out in late 82. Yeah. This scene takes place in early 83. We're in January 83. Oh, my birth year. Um, <laughs> speaking of the cure, there Please. is, I finally got a music reference. Usually <laughs> John, usually one. John, not the first one, but like the best one so far. Usually John is like eagle ears in terms of like what is going on in terms of the music. John also watches everything that I ever watched in my life with captions on. So it does say what the artist and, and song name is. But I got so excited when I heard the like, the chain playing because the chain is like my, my favorite Fleetwood Mac song. Um, and I was like, I know this one. And also yeah. like, what a great soundtrack to just like some crazy spy craft stuff. Like mm-hmm. so good. And also mm-hmm. obviously Harry Styles covers this song and it <laughs> is phenomenal. And he's best friends with Stevie Nicks. Like who doesn't love that? Yeah, I'm well, first of all, RIP and Christine McVie. Uh, uh, I yes. guess that was late the end of twenty twenty two, but still. Yeah. Um and then secondly, the second crucial spycraft scene score to Fleetwood Mac, it's the I believe the very first episode, maybe it's episode two, where Tusk plays a crucial role, um, which is perhaps my favorite Fleetwood Mac Mac song. Look at that. Now we've gotten both of these uh, connected in The Americans. I think Stan has the best... 80s reference actually like sure i think you're right actively he's like oh she could have shot jr so stan is referencing <laughs> like obviously like the famous uh who shot jr from dallas and i was just like stan look at you like up on your pop culture <laughs> oh, the rare one-liner and as you point out rare pop culture yeah from stan so after i believe it was episode five where um elizabeth is uh brings blue cheese over to Lisa or Lisa (laughs) got blue cheese for their event. And they're like, wow, this is crazy. I can't believe this is what we're having here. The like exotic food that is now like extremely run of the mill is sushi. Like, Oh, raw fish. Can you even (laughs) like what's happening here? But I I loved it. I I live in Plattsburgh, New York. And there's, so I 
am a vegetarian, so I don't eat, I can't vouch for the sushi, but like people who enjoy sushi are like this Plattsburgh, New York sushi joint is good, like legitimately. And like, it's so like run of the mill that in like the not particularly bougie town of Plattsburgh, New York, like there is a good, a good enough sushi place. Apparently <laughs> the veggie sushi is good, but like you can't fuck up veggie sushi. So I don't eat sushi cause I'm a picky eater and a baby. <laughs> an important note um i wanted to add uh, have an addendum to your like uh stan as a racist point yeah that one of the particular manifestations of that that has a an 80s tinge to it yeah is that we're like approaching peak affirmative action panic yeah. on the right and on like white supremacy's behalf and so like i think that that's also implied by Stan's racism about Aderholt here in this episode. I think you're like the suggestion that like, Oh, Aderholt is here because he's a black guy because of affirmative. Action. Yeah. I think you're right. It, it's not something so. that I was thinking about like actively, but I think the point is, is an important addendum to the Stan is a racist and Noah Emmerich is good at directing himself being a racist. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. All right, Danielle, who's our minor character of the week? Listen, it's Walter Taffet. Like it played by Jefferson Mays. He just like, he does a great job. He comes in he messes up Martha's life. He challenges Gad. The whole thing is upside down. Just like, good job. Yeah, I mean, he, Walter Taffet has a very particular cadence and affect. Yeah. And um, <laughs> the performance of it is like very effective and like it's a little bit cliched, but not in a grating way. A hundred percent. It's like cliched in the, like, to the perfect pitch. Yeah, there we go. All right. I think we have uh, made it to the cave, John. Oh, God. I can't believe it. I can't believe I volunteered to do this. <laughs> I think, like, uh, we collectively volunteered you. Fair, fair enough. Uh, Danielle, as we pointed out on some episode, has been doing more of the cave. Uh, so it's only fair. So, Danielle, I think in diving into... A-N-T, Actor Network Theory, <laughs> O-O-O, Object-Oriented Ontology, um, on the N-Q-G-B. I think it's, you know, let's let's go with Latour. And so Latour, in one of kind of his famous pieces um, called On Actor Network Theory, um, defines what an actant is. And I think actant is the kind of key word here for us in this episode. Okay. And so this is Latour in this article. An actant, that is, is something that acts or to which activity is granted by others. It implies no special motivation or human individual actors, nor of humans in general. An actant can literally be anything provided it is granted to be the source of an action, end quote. Right? So this is the kind of key first part of Latour's understanding of what an actant is, Mm -hmm. right? It is a thing that, uh, that, you know, produces effects on others, right? That is the source of an action by some other people, objects, things, actants themselves, whatever the case may be. And that's kind of the first layer of it. And then the second layer is that Latour says, this shouldn't be that difficult a point to understand, but quote, there's an anthropocentrism and sociocentrism that is so strong in social sciences, as well as in the critiques of social explanations, end quote that it becomes really hard to understand anything that is not a human is causing action or generating action. And so that is like the block to understanding things as objects or as actants um, in this case. So 
to tie this kind of back into the Americans itself, I think we can say this episode and this particularly the way we kind of framed the opening bit yeah. of the of the episode that the pen itself, the bug itself, Martha's recording device in her purse, the device that's used to sweep for the bugs themselves. All of those are very, very much actants yeah. in this episode in the Latour sense because they are themselves in the like activity that they have and the effects they have on others, these kind of sources of action, right, to use yeah. Latour's terminology. And so I thought that it was useful for us to think about the way that these, what we would call typically kind of non-human objects. Yeah are themselves actants, you know, in general from Latour's perspective. And we actually get an like strangely like pertinent window onto that yeah. um, from this particular episode of the Americans. Yeah. And I love that. And I think just to like build that out a little bit to come back to some of the ideas that you're thinking about, like that not only do we get a window on that on, on actants, but also like the sort of like the networks that yes. these actants exist within and, and like are sort of like animated and, and, and are animated by like the, the network character of those things like feels mm -hmm. really, really pertinent to the way we're thinking about the pen, the bug, the sweeping device, the, I don't know, the, the pizza box. <laughs> right. Right. I, I don't mind. Most, most importantly, <laughs> most importantly. Yeah. I mean, and there's, you know, our, I think we could argue uh, that there's like a visual representation of the network yeah. right, in the actants when you have Gad, Stan, Adderholt, yeah. the listening device, the desk, the pen that has like now been taken apart yeah. or fell, fell, you know, fell out been taking apart like that that itself is like a momentary kind yeah. of visual representation of a network in which the you know an actant is the pen itself the listening device itself i think that's right i love this you know i'm never gonna do latour on my own but i love that you were bold <laughs> enough to do it i can't believe we did Latour. i mean granted i was just like here let me read some quotes i can explanation on my own i can i feel like you made us read a latour article for our gun stuff too <laughs> i did make us read a latour article. i didn't hate I mean, it but it's just yeah. like you know it it's like my brain has to shift into a different gear to think this way. So I appreciate it. I thoroughly agree with you there. <laughs> All right. um, do so, we have a theory ship? Oh, oh, do we have a theory <laughs> ship? So this was referenced earlier. We have a Henry telling, <laughs> saying, you're not a part of this discourse page. And oh so God. unsurprisingly, Danielle, I would like to theory ship Henry with Foucault's archaeology of knowledge. Yeah. And it's like, not because I want Henry to not only be able to like drop discourse, I also envision Henry dropping episteme into specific conversations with his family members. And that's why I'm theory shipping Henry and Foucault. You know who needs episteme? The fucking Jennings. <laughs> John, I feel like we have come, we have triumphantly come to the end of this episode. Oh, a thousand percent. We're a little loopy, but we got here. <laughs> yeah, this is, I mean, we're not used to recording nighttime episodes, no. but it actually kind of works. I love it. <laughs> we're looser than in the nighttime. I think so. Um, I think so. Thanks as always to producer Amy. 
Um, up next in the feed, in two weeks, you'll have The American Season 3, Episode 8, Divestment. And thanks so much for joining us on Not Quite Right Book, a TV podcast. Joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at Not Great Books TV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Bless FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.